crazy. I just kept recording. Okay, we are live online, and uh, if there was no announcements that I missed, Marianne, good to see you. Joshua. Um, I'm going to stand up so I can see. Hey, Zoe, I have a question for you. Zoe! Zoe, have you ever, have you ever seen a really big stick? Like a really big stick? No. You've never seen a really big stick? There, well, there are really big sticks. Have you ever seen a small stick? Yes. yes. Okay, we have a winner there. <laughs> have you ever seen a small stick eat something? Me neither. But that's what happened in our parasha this week. The missing bone. Uh, when Moses took his staff and threw it on the ground, turned into a snake. Well, then, when he picked it up again, it turned back into a stick. But when it was a stick, it ate the other Egyptian staffs as a staff. One of the funny things about the midrash, they point out that it wasn't a snake anymore. It was a stick. Yeah. So that's kind of crazy. Think about it. Like the stick's lying on the ground, and it's swallowing other, other sticks. Um, but the point of this whole thing, of course, is to talk about the fact that God does miracles. God does miracles, right, Zoe? Absolutely. And he can do anything. And this week's parsha, I really liked it. Um, one of the comments from Yishai Fleischer in talking about this week, um, he just says, this is, like, this is the showdown, right, between God and Pharaoh. But what's really important about this week is that this is the demonstration that God is God. Like, up until now, God has always worked within the confines of, of the time and space that he's created for the most part. He's done some miracles here and there, but they've been relatively um, relatively discreet um, along that the way. The flood was a little big. The flood thing was a little big, but even that was, was a naturally like looking event. It was different. I mean, it wasn't really, but it looked like one that just happened, right? Rain, but a lot of it. Rain, but a lot of it. Um, and what they're saying is that this week is he's God is saying he's not the God of heaven. He's also the God of earth. And Pharaoh, up until this point, has kind of seen himself as a deity, the God. And now that's being challenged. God is saying, no, I'm actually in charge. And I am the God of both the heaven and the earth. And you can't just, you know, trap me up in heaven and be like, well, that's, that's your domain. We own this one. Um, and I think it's really important because, you know, in, in the era that we live in today, so much of, like... Uh, um, the response to God is sort of that agnostic point of view, which sort of says, there's a God somewhere. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he does. He doesn't care about me. He's just out there somewhere. He probably made the planet because I can't explain it otherwise. But aside from that, that was the end of his interaction with humanity. And he might be a she. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or something like that. Um, he, she. And so, in, but instead, what God is demonstrating in this week's portion, uh, in particular is that he is the involved God in the affairs of man, in human history, and all of nature, all of creation sways to him. So that's why the Midrash starts to get a little weird on purpose, because they talk about things like sticks eating snakes and fire or hail ice mixed with fire falling from heaven, and uh, Moses and Aaron grabbing two handfuls of soot Handing it to Moses, who with one hand can throw the whole pile up in the air, and it covers all of Egypt, and then turns into lice. Because, you know, that's our boils. So that's like the idea being like, um, the Midrash goes out of its way because they want you to realize this is supposed to be shocking. 
You know, one of the um, I remember reading. I don't know, if like fans of literature, hist- uh, classic literature, reading *The War of the Worlds* um, from H.G. Wells. And *War of the Worlds* by H.G. Wells seems so meh to us today. So there's aliens, they have giant robots, there's laser beams, whatever, you know, please. But you have to put it in the context of when H.G. Wells wrote it. So H.G. Wells was probably one of the very first people to ever think of this idea. And he writes this book at a time when the most technological advancement we'd seen was like the train engine. And he's talking about robots walking the earth that are 100 feet high, blowing things up with laser beams. The horror and the, 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 the terror that would overwhelm the populace in the book um, is kind of lost in us today. But for those who are reading it in like, what was it, 1880-something or whatever, when H.G. Wells wrote it, they would have felt that, that awe. And I, I hope that that's like, as you're reading through the, the plagues, that you try to recreate that sense of awe. It's hard for us. We've read this so many times. But these are supposed to be like disturbing miracles. They're supposed to be things that make you go, whoa, like I cannot believe that happened. Um, because this is, this is God's like um, coming out, so to speak, to the world, to tell the world he's God. Uh, and that's why it's such an important passage in Judaism and why it's such an important passage to us. Um, as we, I think uh, you know, I mentioned recently to uh, some other people that this is like, you see this over and over and over again. For Shabbat, we remember the Exodus from Egypt. Every morning, remember the Exodus from Egypt. There's a special verse you read every day that's remember the Exodus from Egypt. Over and over and over again, we talk about the Exodus from Egypt because this is like the, this is the critical moment in our in our place as a people, our relationship with Him. Um, but I'm I'm done now. If someone else wants to, you know, jump in, <laughs> I get excited. Uh, but one of the things, just to keep it moving, um, one of the things this week starts with is I am Adonai. And there's this weird phrase, passage where God says, I didn't show myself as Adonai to Abraham and Jacob, but I'm telling you who I am now. And um, Rashi and the other commentators say, well, that's kind of confusing because the patriarchs knew who he was, knew the name Hashem. Why don't they seem to, why does he say that? And their explanation is that, well, he hasn't shown himself. And the reason is because the name Hashem, or the Tetragrammaton, Yud and He and Bob and He, Together, that name, it um, in Judaism represents the God who is uh, the filler of His promises. He is the one who rewards the righteous. He fulfills that, and He punishes the wicked. And up to this point, people haven't really seen that. They haven't seen Him do so much, especially in Egypt. I mean, look, Pharaoh is king, and everything's great for him, and he's throwing babies into the water. But the you know the 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 Here's, here's uh, you know, godly people like Anam and Yochaved raising Moshe, and they're slaves. So the world looks like it's all up, up, upside down. Um, and so God tells Moses, now I'm going to show you Hashem. I'm going to show you my name. And if you think about it, this fits so well in with Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 6, says that we must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the, this is the statement of faith in the, in the book of Hebrews. And that fits so well with this name, Hashem. Because he's the rewarder. He's the fulfiller of his word. We have to believe that. His name also, some people say the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He are like a, uh, almost like an acronym for uh, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. So it's like the God who is, you must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you kind of see all that kind of coming together in this personal name that he gives to Moses. Yes, sir. I'm reminded of 
last one we talked about this, we we made a mention since I think Jonathan was the the one burdened with the blessing of uh, real names, <laughs> and uh, we recognized that a lot of the names of these people we're reading about are are what we would call biblical type names. There are names associating them and their children with God mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, whether we've got 200 or 270 or whatever number of years it is, um, which I, I always liken them to our own country and how we have, I guess, about half of our country forgetting our origination, forgetting right. the, the beginning of our nation. Um, they had pretty much the same amount of time. Right. And, you know, you think, in by and large, they had lost and forgotten who God was, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the parents apparently want to try and give their kids little reminders. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they did or not, we, we don't know. But um, there seems to be a little bit of hesitation on their part, uh, at least the generation that he's dealing with as they start. Right. Right, that's a good point. And I think that you see the same thing later when the, the elders are called out. We have their names. And I believe the sage's commentary points that out. Like, these are Hebrew names. These are names that have to do with God or have to do with... Um, and so it's, they, they haven't completely assimilated into Egypt. I mean, tradition holds they're at like the 49th level of depravity. So the people of Israel at this point are not, not good people. But they've clung to like the last vestiges, so to speak, of their heritage... Um, and it's much like the the, um, the the people of Israel in exile, even up until recently. Um, yeah, how many uh, people out there had named things like Abraham and Shlo, you know, and different types of Yitzhak and other types of things like that? And you, um, whether they were religious or not, whether the parents were religious or not, but that that Jewish heritage and, and culture was important. Um, and it's kind of cool how God created a culture that would help, like, lead the pathway back. Like that's kind of the idea behind it. And it carries with it a lot of importance uh, with those types of cultural elements. Which is one reason why like you so much of these little things that might seem like, well, that's not in the Bible, they're still important. You know, things like lighting two candles every night. Uh, for Shabbat every Friday night. Um, doing your having your challah loaf or having your um, the little blessings that you say or the little things you do for the holidays or whatever it might be, like those types of things are important because they create a framework. You know, they create, um, you know, there's a, there's a story that says after the Holocaust, all these children got saved, right, into Christian families um, and into churches and things. And the rabbi went around afterwards to try to find them, find these Jewish children. And he came to this one, like, uh, um, like a monastery or whatever else that had adopted a lot of these kids. And he, uh, he walked in and he's like, I found the priest. And he says, you know, I want to talk to the Jewish children here. He's like, there are no Jewish children here. They're all Christians. There are no Jewish children here. And uh, <laughs> and so he's like, I just, just give me give me five minutes. That's all I need. So he walked into the little room where they're all sleeping. He started to say Shema. And one by one, the little voices joined him. Because they'd grown up their whole little childhood. Even though they didn't even realize who their parents were. They'd probably forgotten most of what had happened because um, maybe they blocked it out because of traumatic but they remembered how to sing the start of Shema. And like that's that's the idea, right? That's that's kind of what you're you're going for. You know, you put these little seeds in there to 
kind of keep them close. And that's what God's doing. He's giving us things like tzitzit. He's giving us things like, like tefillin. And all these little, small little traditions kind of create culture. The same thing happened to the Master of Zorro with the smell of the flowers. Yeah, I get it. Right, <laughs> yes. Also a good reference. I think it probably depends on how you're listening and the memory thing about it being yeah. like memory can be found in the smell. Right, right. And, and Judaism is full of it. I mean, we are not, this week's portion is not Pesach, but when we get to Pesach, like, that's that's part of the idea. They want you to experience, like, you were there. And so you have things you taste, and things that you touch, and things that you smell, and things that you hear. And um, all of those all of those senses combined create a very powerful memory. They really do. If I smell spaghetti, I'm in my grandmother's kitchen immediately. There it is. And I can see everything. I can feel her. It's really interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, no, it has that power. Absolutely. My girlfriend and I were talking about this thing the other day about forgetfulness, how we are so easily forget, you know, and what we do instead, like we immediately, our minds go to like, oh my God, uh, you know, instead of thinking, okay, man, it's the good Lord. What about the good Lord? Where is he in this picture? You know, that mm. thing. It's almost like it's, sometimes for me personally, it's forced. I have to remember to think that way. Don't think this way. Think this way. You know, that type of, the memories, all the things that you're talking about, like your point. Right. You know, the, the festivals helpful, and the... Right. Totally helpful. You know, keep reminding. Didn't they call first for this kind of reason? Like, they wouldn't be, yeah. they come around the next traveling, blah, blah, blah. Oh, the altar. Remember that was where so-and-so. Right. Absolutely. They make markers. Yeah. I need it. Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of what... Um, you know, we're doing, we revisit the beginning of this portion to talk about Moses' heritage, and it kind of gives you an idea, like, this is where he came from. You know, here's his background. Um, and along the way, it also emphasizes, like, his heritage and how important he was and whatever else. But then, if you think about it, like, this is a real struggle for Moses. Like, this portion starts with, he's not in a good place. And I think that's so encouraging for us, it should be, um, because the sages don't like it. They, they don't, they're, they're not very complimentary, Moses here, which is probably valid. But he, um, like, he did exactly what God said. He went to Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh, let people go. Pharaoh says, nope, make it tougher on the people. The people are all upset. Moses comes back to Moses. And says, God, Moses comes back to God and says, I understand what's going on. God says, don't worry about it. Go back and talk to the people. Moses goes back and talks to the people, and they don't listen. And then he comes back to God, and God doesn't go, there, there, Moses. It's okay. Get him next time. God says, now go to Pharaoh. And, and Moses is like, wait, okay, what? The people won't listen to me. The people who are slaves, like this, the sages point out, this is the first example of what they call kol, kol homer, like light versus heavy in, uh, in, um, in Hebrew is the idea of a comparison. So if the, the people who are slaves who want to leave Egypt won't listen to me telling them we should leave Egypt, how is Pharaoh, who doesn't want them to leave Egypt, going to listen to me? And God's response is, I am not enough. Like, not your problem. <laughs> and it's really cool because, as we were talking at the beginning, this is the portion when God steps into the universe um, in a tangible way so that the world can see. And I think that's just so encouraging because sometimes it feels like that. You feel like you're, you're beating your head against the darkness and you're trying so hard to do what's right and you're trying so hard to, you're praying so hard, or you're working so hard, you're doing whatever, and then 
it doesn't work out the way that it should or the, the righteous succeed or the righteous suffer and the wicked succeed and it just feels like this world doesn't function correctly. Um, and God's response is, I am Hashem. You know, you have to trust that I am going to do what I said I was going to do, whether you can see it now or not. Amen. And at the end, as we're reading in the Revelation, that portion that Christine read, is uh, God unleashes on the wicked. I mean, you, he, he, he reveals the full scope of his power, and it is overwhelming. do those big hailstones. Yeah, even bigger. It's like, you thought that the ones in Egypt were cool. Check these out. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, that idea of like God coming down into the world, you know, stepping in. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was pointing out that the lice is a little bit compared to the the phrases used when uh, in the Tower of Babel to describe like this idea of like biblical satire. And it was I've never thought of it this way, but because the the quote that it uh, because obviously in the Tower of Babel we're trying to build a tower to heaven, you know. And the quote is something like, and God came down to see what was going on. <laughs> right. Like as if to say, it was so small that God had to actually come all the way down just to see it. You know, and uh, he was pointing out that that's what we have this week with the, the lice as well. Where it's like, you think you, you're cool because you can do frogs, you can do this and that. Like, can you do like even just this teeny tiny little thing? Can you even just, can you do that? And no, you can't. Okay. <laughs> I guess you're nothing. You know, and, and it was, I've never seen it that way, but... He was pointing out that, that that's definitely a part of the narrative that we see here. Is there's these satirical moments that, that Judaism kind of gets and, and has a good chuckle you know, at uh, God showing himself to be way more powerful than anyone on earth. Absolutely. It's like that, uh, was it uh, Psalm 2? You know, Why do the nations rage? And it says the Lord mocks them. He holds them in derision. Yeah. He's just laughing because it's just so ridiculous that they think that they can oppose God. And another humorous side of the lice is that everyone's crawling with bugs and they're trying to make more bugs. <laughs> right, I know, right? <laughs> it's like making more frogs, more blood. It's like, that's great. Can you undo it? You know? If I was Pharaoh, I would want in my guys to undo what not to add to. Well, what's even more interesting is when he says, when do you want it done? He doesn't say, oh, right now. He's like, well, let's do one more day of this. I think it'd be really yeah. swell if we just have a night of continuing frogs. Yeah, the frogs are fine. Yeah. Tomorrow. Which I love the, the, the commentary on that passage. They're like, Moses is basically like taunting Pharaoh. He's like, so just so you know that my God can do anything I, that whenever he wants to, you pick the time when the frogs are going to leave. And Pharaoh says tomorrow. And sure enough, that's when it happens. You see later, um, with some of the, some of the uh, plagues, God picks the time. He says, tomorrow, this is going to happen. You know, like, heads up, um, this is what we're going to do. I, I get the impression he handed him a calendar. So, you know, we can get rid of the frogs. When, when, when do you want the frogs to go? Hands him a calendar. So he can't say 15 minutes from now. That's not on the calendar. He's got to pick tomorrow. He can't say today because, well, today, they're already here today. Tomorrow's as best he can do. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe he had a haircut that afternoon. Just to <laughs> like that was not a good time. You know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. But it is, it is um, I love it because, to tell y'all's point, like, like God's, God's showing off yeah. in this parasha, like, in a good way. Like, he's, he's, he's demonstrating power. And I, I was thinking about it this week and kind of had, like, you know, one of those Baruch Hashem kind of, like, everything kind of clicks together moments type things. I'm thinking, like, the, the story of the Exodus is actually about the end of time. Like, it's about God's final judgment. And we tied in Revelation so well this morning. That was such a great one. You see some of the similar plagues and things. 
And I think that as Christians, we make a mistake when we try to make Pesach about Yeshua. The Pesach lamb is about Yeshua, but the Exodus is about the redemption at the end. And I think it helps to think of it this way because one of the struggles, as for those of us who came out of a Christian background, is, is feeling like Christianity puts everything on Yeshua's sacrifice. And Judaism, of course, puts everything on a final redemption at the end. And it feels like there's this, this dichotomy, like something, there's a contradiction. Like, how do we, what do we do with Yeshua? How do we fix, is this sacrifice even necessary? It's a question sometimes people ask. And I think that the story of Pesach, the story of Exodus, makes that picture so clear. Because the issue with people of Israel is that they weren't worthy to be redeemed. One of the things that the, the commentary talks about is Moses is telling God, like, you can't send me. It won't do any good. The people of Israel are evil. They have no right to be saved. How can you possibly do this? And it says in Ezekiel that, um, you know, you've been redeemed because of your bloods, plural. And so in, in tradition, they, te- they interpret that as saying, like, you're redeemed because of the blood of circumcision and the blood of the Passover lamb. That's why you were redeemed. And so if you think about, like, in Judaism, he said this idea of merit. Like, you, you have to be worthy God, to act somehow. And we ask all the time for God to act on his own behalf because we don't deserve it. Um, but when it comes to this redemption story, God almost acts like somehow they were worthy. But how? Well, they were worthy because of the lamb. And I thought about that more. It's like Yeshua is like, Yeshua is the merit for us. Like he's what makes redemption possible. So on the one hand, he is most important. He's absolutely essential. Without Yeshua, there is no redemption. But at the same time, he's not the redemption. He's the starting point for redemption. But the final redemption of when God comes and redeems the world and restores everything, that's what we're yearning for. And if you think about it, the picture of, of the, the, the bloods, the circumcision and the Pesach lamb, is such a cool cosmic picture of us today. Circumcision is something that's done to you. You have no choice in the matter. But it's something that you personally experience. It's your life. The Passover lamb is completely your choice. You must choose to do it, but it's not your experience. It's the land's blood that is used for you. So if you make that in a cosmic sense, the circumcision almost like represents the whole idea of God's choice of us. We had no say in the matter. God chose you in some cosmic sense. He wanted you, but then it affects us whether you want it to or not. We're talking about Jews whose names are Yitzhak. They didn't pick that name. Well, now they're stuck with it their whole life. Um, And so it affects your life in a tangible way. But then Yeshua is the lamb. We have a responsibility. We have to choose him. But on the flip side, it's not like our choice is necessarily the merit that makes us worthy. It's the blood. It's his sacrifice and his righteousness that makes us worthy. So we have this balance, this weird balance where we're chosen, but we have to choose. But what we're choosing, it's not to our credit, like we can claim credit like this is my righteousness for being chosen. Because it's really his righteousness that applies to us. So this whole idea, I think that's really helped me thinking about like what's the importance of Yeshua. It's like he's essential. His sacrifice, his death and resurrection is essential. Without him, there is no redemption. But it's not the end of the story. And we live in a fallen world. And I think that part of the struggle sometimes is feeling like, well, what good did it do? The world is still fallen because we're still yearning for that final redemption. Like if you were to think about it in terms of Exodus, right now, it's about 10 minutes till midnight. We put the blood on the doorpost. We're covered. We have God's applied merit, his worth to our lives to be worthy of being saved. And now we're waiting. And it's dark and we're waiting 
for God to come through and slay all the firstborn and take us out of Egypt. That's, that's how I see the, the Exodus story in like a big picture. Josiah. The Torah be uh, pointing out something very uh, odd uh, for the first plague. It keeps on saying in my version, the fish life that is in the water shall die. And the fish life that was in the river died. It doesn't seem to say anything about any other creatures other than the fish dying. Well, I would guess maybe maybe the fish would include anything that lives in the water like permanently. But I guess things like crocodiles and whatnot, they could climb out of the water. If you're breathing blood, that's probably not going to work. Or frogs. Or frogs. But you can get out. There's, a, there's something beneficial there. I was trying to figure out what the Egyptians were drinking. This lasted for a week. They could have been drinking wine. Very good. Good good idea. I also it's also possible they had to you know buy their water from the Jews. Um, but yeah, they were. It was a, it was a, it would be a very difficult time. It's crazy to me that Pharaoh doesn't freak out over this one. Like Pharaoh's like, yeah, okay, fine. You can turn the Nile into blood, whatever. And it's like, <laughs> we got nothing to drink, people. I mean, have you ever opened your fridge and you don't you, you want to you pour yourself a bowl of cereal, open the fridge, there's no milk? Oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? But you know, they have no water. And Pharaoh's like, whatever. And this just I think really emphasizes like the the hard heart, the evilness in Pharaoh. He was so resistant. It's like reading the Revelation. And God sent a hundred pound hailstones on the plant on the earth, and people aren't going, okay, I'm so sorry, just make it stop. Instead, they're angry at God. And I think that's that's the heart of wickedness. It doesn't respond. You know, you should flesh portion last week, he's saying that's when you see real wickedness. Instead of responding to God's judgment or a rebuke from another person with humility to say, oh, yeah, maybe I should check myself. Instead, evil responds by doubling down. They say, no, I'm going to twice as much, and I dare you to stop me. Um, I've got a whole bunch of people, so we're going to start with Micah and move our way around. Okay. Well, some people say that the um, Nile actually only turned into blood for a short period of time, killing all the fish, and then it turned back into water. But they couldn't drink water since the fish had poisoned it. That's pretty and nasty. That was why the uh, Egyptian magicians could transform water into blood. That's an interesting theory. That could be it. Either way, it was undrinkable and gross. It probably smelled like. No, it says it stank. <laughs> it says that they dug at the you know the side of the river. My thought on that right is if you dig down, then the water can be fil- The blood could be filtered, and you can get water to drink. Mm-hmm. Maybe. That's kind yeah, of it acts like a sieve. So sand, wood, you can, because it'll. Well, it's fresh water too. Yeah, that's completely possible. So well, that's possible. That's probably that, what they did. That can be because that's what they did their irrigation. Right. Um, so that same concept would be applied with regards to fresh water. Right. And well, verse twenty-four does say they they couldn't drink the water, so they dug around the river. Right. I mean, it does say all the containers and the streams and everything had been turned to blood. It was just the the stuff that was out there now, the new stuff they could they could possibly drink. That makes sense. I follow that. I've got uh, my father-in-law and then Greg and I'll come back to my dad. Okay, so uh, I'm in uh, nine. Dang. We can go anywhere and come back again. Yeah, That's the great part in, of this. Uh, 9.27. I use this quote from time to time at home. I'll, I'll, you know, just think really stupid, and I'll tell my wife, uh, you are the righteous one. I, I, I am the wicked one, and I have sinned. This is an amazing statement, that God is the tzaddik. Um, 
Hmm. It took me a little bit to find it in the uh, in the scripture. Papayam, Papayam, Adonai Hatzavim. He is the righteous one. I'm always astonished at this because I, I, I'm actually astonished that I get it here. Um, that, you know, we, the hailstones are, are busting everything. Um, two things I noticed this year. First is that uh, whoever did not pay attention, if we move back up to 21, to the word of God left his servants and his livestock in the field. Mm-hmm. We already know this didn't happen in the land of Goshen. So we're talking about Egyptians. Mm-hmm. So now some of them are, are starting to fear God or pay attention to the word of God, which is great. But they don't have any livestock. We've already seen prior to this, all their cows and everybody, all their livestock died in a previous plague. So there must have been some extra livestock hanging around. There's a tradition on that, actually. It's just tied into this. this you want to go there? Or do you? I want you to bring it up. Second okay. thing was, um, now that we recognize that this hail is unbelievable, hitting everything, everywhere, except the land ocean, Pharaoh sends and summons. Moshe and Aaron, they show up. I've sinned this time. God is the Tari. I and my people are the wicked ones. Plead with God and let God's thunder and that hell be enough. I will send you away and you shall not continue to remain here. Moshe says to him, when I leave the city, I'll spread my hands to God. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail in order that you may know that the land belongs to God. Hmm. So, it's, it's got to be amazing. I bet you everybody in wherever Pharaoh was, palace, castle, whatever it is, is all looking out the window <laughs> and watching Moses and Aaron walk down the sidewalk, and they're not concerned at all. And the hailstones are hitting on every other side, but not hitting them. That's got to be an amazing demonstration power and specificity right. of God. Not just the land of Goshen, but no 50 or 100 pound hailstones hit his messengers. Yeah, I but just think that's the coolest thing. That's absolutely right. Absolutely. He's, he knows you and he'll protect you. And in the, the tradition in the commentary says that the, the hail, when, when Moses prayed and God stopped it, that it stopped in midair and disappeared. Like it didn't, you know, they say that the rain stopped and the sages go, wait a minute, when was the rain? I didn't see any rain. And they're like, it's because when the hail melted, it should have turned into rain when God stopped the hail. But instead, God stopped the rain too. So nothing hit the ground. Nice. Very cool. It's nice. yeah, Very cool. The, uh, but the, the tradition about the, 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 uh, the animals there's a, um, I think it's Rashi was talking about that one, and he says that, like, so basically he asked the same question you did. Rashi's very good at asking questions. And he said, wait a minute, where are the animals later coming from? And he says, well, it's the same thing here. The people that had feared God heard Moses say that all of the livestock in the field will die. So they brought their animals inside, and they didn't die. Which is really cool, because I think that's one of the things you start to realize. We, we live today, and I feel like sometimes we... Um, there's this view of uh, so many people that say, well, well, you know, not everybody has heard 
they haven't all read the whole Bible. How can we even really believe that God could possibly judge them and whatever else? And it's like, God's really just looking for, like, the smallest steps of faith. I mean, the Egyptians, you know, the ones that were good heard, like, one word, and they said, ooh, I'm not doing that, because God, God, God would be mad if I do that. They don't do that. And that was enough to save them. It kind of makes you wonder who the uh, the mixed multitude is that comes out of Egypt, right, mm -hmm. from, from the people? Greg? Uh, yeah, just as we've been talking about Pharaoh, uh, this week on what Yushai Fleischer and, and uh, Rabbi Mike were talking about something that I had never thought of before, and it was the idea that, uh, it was Rabbi Mike that was saying, his Rebbe taught him the way that you read Chumash is by thinking about it like an internal dialogue, where you are every character. That even when you read about Pharaoh, like, that's you. And the times when you're being like that. And when you read about Moshe and Aaron, and when you read about every character, you put yourself in, in those shoes uh, and think about the times that you've been that way, or, or think about it as like an internal dialogue. And that was just really eye-opening. I've never thought about that before, because it's easy to kind of think the whole time through this portion, like, yeah, like I'm on the good side, right? Like our team is always winning throughout this whole portion. But then that really, I think, creates a, uh, a, a very uh, intense fear of heaven when you think about the times when you're actually like Pharaoh. You know, and, and that really struck me this week's in this week's portion, thinking about the times that I do exactly that, that same thing, you know, hardening my heart or ignoring miracles that are around me or, you know, right. whatever it may be. And, uh, and that, that really starts to bring it home that we see, like, what, what our job is to always be on, on the winning side, but always to try to um, not feel too self-righteous, to, to your point about where the merit comes from, right? It's not our right. own righteousness. Um, right. but having that hit home for us just to even think about it from the perspective of the Pharaoh. Yeah, that's good. That we're like that. Yeah, I like that comment in, yeah, the, in the podcast. That was good. But what does it say about me that when I first started this, I do relate to the other people <laughs> much more than I. You're a humble woman. That's what it says. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we talk, you're talking about routine and how um, tradition, how, how God is actually basically hardwired us for uh, craving as human beings, craving for patterns. And we use the patterns to remind ourselves, we use the patterns to train our children, and he gave us this pattern. There's a difference obviously between the commandment of tzitzit and how we wear them. The commandment doesn't tell us what, it just tells us to do it. So the tradition is the, the how-to, whereas the commandment's a, like a given. But we make them one and the same, which isn't necessarily bad long as we don't point our finger and say that you're doing it wrong. Um, but in this case, in, cha in chapter 6 at the very beginning, this is the pattern that he gave us for our Passover Seder. And, and although the Seder, we would say, well, the Seder's not commanded, although we would say we have, a, we have a, uh, an, an exe excellent example in the fact that our Messiah kept the Seder in, in precisely the traditional way. So it's a tradition, but it's born, born out of this. And in fact, we could we could go so far as to say, because since you already gave us the, the pattern of Exodus is the pattern of redemption, and the pattern of Exodus is borne out in the final redemption, and all of it is always about redemption. So in reality, we, we can take this as, as this passage as the, as, the, uh, as the cornerstone, as the foundation for all of Scripture, where he says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am God. This is chapter 8, verse 6. I am God, and I will take you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I'll save you from labor. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as a people for myself, and I will be a God to you, and you will know that I am God, your God, who is taking you out of, uh, uh, from under the burdens of Egypt. So the four I wills, the, the statements of what he will do, because he's a God of action, mm-hmm. are, are represented in our four cups the Passover. So we, when we keep the tradition, we're reminding ourselves of this truth that's, that's not tradition. That's, mm-hmm. that's the foundation for everything that we should re- recognize that God does in the world with relationship to human beings is always going back to this. Right, yeah, that's a good point. And using the tradition to reinforce those points. And so we train our children, little play cups like these right here, all the way up till, like you said, when we're adults, maybe we've forgotten everything. But when it comes to Passover time, we know that there's four cups. We know the four cups represent four things that God said he would do. To take us out of Egypt. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. No, it's really good. And it's, um, I'm glad you brought us back to the beginning because I was thinking more about this whole um, I am Adonai, which he starts with that phrase there to say to the children of Israel, I am Adonai. Um, I am Hashem, I should say, because it's, it's the Tetragrammaton. Um, and thinking about, like, is that weird verse that we, we say at the end of Elenu? It's in Prophets, I think it's in Zechariah. It's, it's, he will be one and his name will be one. And it's a really odd um verse because we think to ourselves, what does it mean his name will be one um and i'm thinking of some about it this week and i was thinking like well what's interesting about the tetragrammaton the yud and the hay and the vav and the hay is that we actually have no idea what it means the meaning i gave earlier that god is fulfiller of his promises or that it's possibly a stand for like god who is who was and is to come they're all interpretations but the name itself actually has no human meaning there's no hebrew word that is this el shaddai which is the other name he introduces himself as to the others uh, to the patriarchs that there's our there are words that have that can be the root for it. We think it might be related to something it has to do with like a motherly instinct. So it's like he's a provider. Okay, so we could, like there's some things along those lines. But Yudin Hay and Bob and Hay don't have a root. There's no way to know what the name means. But if you think about it, that makes so much sense. Like for us, it's he's God's beyond us. Like the the only way we understand what the name could mean or does mean is based on the actions, what we see. But the actual meaning, the cosmic meaning, that's the, the the inherent meaning is beyond us. God is mystery to some degree. But I think about that phrase, his name will be one, made me think about like, so what do we see this, the, 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 the interpretations from the sages is that that name has to do with God fulfilling his promises. He's doing what he said, he, he's doing what he said he would do, not just saying, but doing. And that, think about the end times is that verse is he, God will be one, his name will be one. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see God doing. We're going to see God pouring out his judgment and his, um, and his redemption at the same time, rescuing the people of Israel and and his believers from the from the four corners of the earth. We're going to see him judging the wicked fully and finally. We're going to see him setting up his kingdom and reigning on earth. And it's like, well, then the yud and the hay and the bob and the hay, four separate letters that have that you know, don't seem to have a meaning to us, are going to be one. They're going to come together. We're going to understand. Maybe we won't necessarily know the meaning, like in like a linguistic sense. We're going to finally grasp the meaning of his name. This is who God really is. And up until then, we've not seen it because the world is broken. But at that point, when we can see God acting, it's going to make sense. And it does here. I mean, Rabbi uh, Gimpel talks about the, the, the Red Sea when God comes in and they say that the reason why the people of Israel prophesy with the song at the sea is because they've had a transcendental experience. It's not just seeing a miracle. The most important thing they saw at the Red Sea was God's justice. 
they saw, they say, they, they, the tradition that holds that, like, they would look in the, and they could see in the water, like, the Egyptians being churned up in the in sea. And, like, this guy, you know, he broke an Israelite's arm, so his arm gets broken. And this guy, you know, he kicks some person in the face, so he has a rock smack him in the face. You know, like, that kind of idea. It's like, you see the measure, measure, the equal justice, which should be done. And it's like the people of Israel experienced God in a new way because they saw. They saw the promises of God being fulfilled. And I think that that's something that's going to be so important for us, something we should cling to. Because right now, you get so discouraged. You don't see God. And that's, um, that's for a different holiday. That would be Purim, which comes up first, about not seeing God. But Exodus is a time when we see God. And that uh, and this should be encouraging and exciting to look forward to that. Yes, sir. You know, in what you're saying, it just occurs to me that from a from a, a believing standpoint, that Yeshua is the Messiah. Um, there's there's so many arguments about whether that is really God. God's not two; He's one. This and that. I just I believe in the final redemption. He returns. There'll be no question that He is, God. and really that God is one. That. There's not another God, and there's like not another God that's not the one that's sitting on that throne right there. Right. You know, we're in His presence again, and there's the protocols that uh, Rick has taught us over the years to approach Him, and violating those protocols are not only inappropriate but fatal. Right. You know, um, but that He will be one, and we will recognize that He is one. That this is God, and secondly, that His name is one. That if you understand Yeshua, that all those names are all going to come together, and you're going to recognize He is the Almighty, He is the Provider, He is our Banner, He is all of that. It's all, it's all one. It's all one person. It's all one figure. It's all one God. Yeah, that's what he said. I like one of the things I really like about that Song of Glory that we do during whenever we do Musa. It's a little weird. But it's really cool because they say that he is containing all of the pictures. Like, his hair is jet black and gray. And gray, yeah. You know, he's strong and old and wise. You know, it's like all at the same time. Because I think that um, when I was a little kid, I remember someone talking about, you know, God's all the time, the same things. Like, he's loving and angry at the same time. And it's like, how is that even possible? I don't understand. Um, that's part of what we talked about, I think, a couple weeks ago in study class in Colossians. When, when Paul is describing Messiah... He, uh, he doesn't get into the, the specifics very much because it's cosmic. It's beyond us. It's mystical. Right. And understanding God is beyond our comprehension. And that's what I think makes this portion so cool because now in this portion you see God. And God, and God is shocking people. And he's, he's making them realize. I mean, you're talking about like the Egyptians. The Egyptians who have a thousand gods. You know, they're going... You know, I'm going to go ahead and bring my livestock today, you know, just in case. And um, the fact that that's starting to seep in, that's that's making a change. One of the things that, um, I quote Yishai Fleischer a lot. I just want to make a quick disclaimer. Not everything he says is great. There's a He doesn't actually think that we should be keeping the Torah, you know. But that being said, um, I like to, as my father taught me, eat the meat, spit out the bones. I really like a lot of his commentary on the Torah. Um, and one of his things was talking about this whole idea of, like, the... Um, I don't remember where I was going with this, but um, where were we? We were talking about, well, it doesn't matter anymore. The point is, uh, the, the point though is that, um, that, you know, God's doing miracles. He's rescuing his people. He's showing them himself. 
and um, and we get to watch that in this in this portion, and it's changing even the enemies of God. Even the enemies of God are turning around and they're realizing, wait a minute, um, this is something that's. Oh, and I remember. So one of the things that he had said, he and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Mike were talking about this, is that like Pharaoh, when Pharaoh goes, I don't even know who this God is. We can cut Pharaoh some slack here, because the people of Israel aren't a people. They're kind of a really big family. And when when he introduces himself, he says. I am God of Israel said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going, okay, we've got a God of the Nile, we've got a God of goats, we've got a God of the sun, we've got a God of Israel. Who's Israel? Oh, that guy that died like 200 something years ago? I don't even, who are we talking about? Then they, they shift and they're like, well, the God of Hebrews. And it's like, oh, okay, you got your whatever. But it's like the, the, the implication from this passage where God says, take the people out, they can serve me. And, they, and Pharaoh goes, well, go ahead and serve them here. And Moses says, well, we can't do that. We're going to kill the lambs in the, la- in, the, in the land, and that's going to make the Egyptians mad who worship lambs. Um, the implication from that is that the people of Israel have not been worshiping God for 200 years. Like, the implication is that there, Egypt has no idea who this God is because the people of Israel aren't acting like they know who this God is. So if you think about it, like, no wonder Pharaoh's saying, I don't know who you're talking about. So the fact that within... You know, a few months, maybe six months. I think the tradition holds that each plague is, is a month. So the plague of pestilence is like what number? Or the, the plague of pestilence is five. I think the hail is seven, something like that. That means by seven months, Egyptians have seen enough from this new god that they'd never heard of before to realize, I'm going to do what he says. I'm not so sure about everything, but at the very least, when, when, when his spokesman speaks, bad things happen. So I'm going to obey. I think it's really cool to see that God's actually reaching into this ignorant people where even his own people hadn't done a good enough job of being a light and showing them himself. Right. So in the same way that you, that you see the division that God makes at the fifth plague where the Egyptians see that it's not hitting everybody. It's hitting some. And those who are willing to believe and to follow through are not having the same consequences. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that there were some who were looking for an answer. I mean, it kind of reminds me of those who were digging on the sides of the river looking for water. I think there were some who were seeking for the greater truth that was coming out of what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that's part of the mixed multitude, those who, who saw God just treat those in Goshen differently than he treated in the cities. Amen. There is a God who... Who can ransom and there is a God who can punish mm-hmm. and I want to know him as the God who ransoms right and so they were drawn to that person that could redeem them right in their situation right You're absolutely right and how cool is it that God would use a distinction that he uses people to be what draws them out and I think that's what God's trying to do with us right I mean that's what we're supposed to be that light because that's part of the idea people I mean this world is we're talking about it broken record but like the world is broken the world is is full of darkness and people are searching for meaning in anything they can possibly grab a hold of they're digging you know <laughs> the water is blood they're trying to find something to drink and you know we're walking around with life and if people you know over time see the same day and you're the same person day day out you know the good and the bad doesn't doesn't throw you you're not you're not um you're not easily angered you're not easily depressed you know you you're content and happy when it's 60 degrees one day and 25 degrees the next, you know, whatever. And it's like, and people look at that and they think to themselves, well, what's different about you? Well, the only thing that looks different about you 
is that you're one of the people of God. I, I think I might want to ha try that. And it's so great that God is so merciful and compassionate that he starts that relationship so many times with us um, on a simple risk-reward basis. You know, it's like he's how the Shema works. God doesn't say, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, because that's the right thing to do. He says, love the Lord your God. And then in the next, the next paragraph says, and if you love him, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll punish you. Because I've noticed that we're humans and we take so much time to learn things. He's so patient with us that he'll start with almost like a, almost a crass motivation, you know? Well, I'll obey God so I won't get, I won't get in trouble. And that's okay. Just start there. We grow from that point. And that's what God's doing with us. You know what that reminds me of one time, Joseph, is this whole thing about it counted for something. I totally don't remember what it, what it counted. But I remember this stuff that I felt really good about when you said that. <laughs> that it was so it's a counting, an accounting. And because I always, sometimes I do pray, like I hope it counts for something. Mm -hmm. That I remember this or that I, mm -hmm. that whatever. I hope it counts for something. Mm -hmm. And then you said that, and I just loved that. Right, and that's, that's the whole idea we're talking about, God, the rewarder of those who seek it. It's like, God, God is, um, I think the Torah teaches this, that God is obligated to reward good deeds. In fact, this, this Judaism, and they, they have some biblical basis for this, goes so far as to say that even the wicked people who do good things, the reason why they succeed in this world is God is rewarding their handful of good deeds. Because he must. Because he must, because that's who God is. And that's why I was talking about earlier, like, Yeshua's sacrifice being so critical. It's like, God must judge sin. And he must reward righteousness. Well, if we're sinning, we must receive punishment. That means we're not worthy to be redeemed. We can't escape. I mean, how, how does that work? How does God judge the Egyptians who are idolaters and save the Israelites who are idolaters? That's not fair. That's not fair at all. The only way it works is if the Israelites repent and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to put the blood on the doorpost. Now there's a reason. Now, it's not so much their righteousness is what, what God's using to save them because they got a lot of to cover up. But God is allowing that sacrifice to cover for them. That's why I think about, like, Messiah is so critical, not just for us in, like, an eternal basis. Like, we're not going to burn in hell, right? You know, But the idea that, like, for the people of Israel, the whole plan of God depends on Messiah's sacrifice. Like, the Midrash uh, talks about, um, I think it's the Midrash, not the Talmud. They say that, that Moses says, you know, who's... Well, I'm gone. Who's going to save the people? I will take a man from God's response. I will take a man from the people of Israel. I will take a man in, on his merit. I will save the people. Exodus Rabbah. Uh, yeah, Rabbah. So in that idea, it's like God has to do something. He cannot abide for his people just to be wicked. And that's the end of the story. And that's okay. He has to judge it somehow. So instead, he's taking Yeshua on behalf um, but it's not just for us on a personal level, for a national level, for the people of Israel. The reason why God will save them at the end is because of Messiah. Amen. So just something you said reminded me of that other part from the podcast, the Yishai Fleischer podcast, where he was talking about the very beginning of this parasha with all I wills and that being the framework of redemption and pointing out that there's only one thing that God says that we need to do. And it says, and you shall know that I am not a knight. And so who's like, you know, Vedata or, you know, Vedatam is like this idea of like, no, you know, that, that is like, that's your job. You need to know. And I thought that was really a really a cool
cool insight, you know, because it reminded me of fate too. Right. Um, so right. Anyway, yeah. No, I love that. I love that part from him, and I, it's such a good point because it's how it's actually how um, that's how the Ten Commandments start. Right. We're gonna do that in a couple weeks. Ten Commandments begin with "I am Adonai." That is, according to tradition, the first commandment. That he is, he is who he is, and like our response to that is not is basically say, "Amen, yeah, I believe, right? <laughs> okay, and like I know, and I think it's just so cool, like that. That's I was we were, I was talking about that with some people recently. There's this struggle because uh, uh, I think sometimes I figure out like, well, I, 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 you know, my I just I can't help myself. I, I, I love, I love bugles. This is. Quoting Jerry Seinfeld, I love bugles. I love small, crunchy wind instrument chips, and I, I just can't restrain myself. So, oh well, I'll just, you know, I'll be a button. Who cares? You know, there's so many people out there that be like, that's just the way that I'm made. I'm, you know, I'm just naturally depressed, so I'm gonna be depressed, or I'm just naturally, you know, I'm angry. I'm an angry person. That's okay. It is what it is. It is what it is. Oh well. And and I was I was talking about this because God's response to that in in um is to say, no, you're not. I made you. I can make you anything I want to make you, but you have responsibility. Your responsibility is to choose. And that's the thing that Yishai Fleischer was talking about the same week. Like that's like the one thing that like Pharaoh like has to do basically is just choose. He just has to choose. And Moses has that same opportunity. It's like God says, "You go and speak to the people of Israel," and Moses, like, "I can't." And God's like, "Just do it. Don't worry about how to do it or what your ability is going to be or anything like that. Just do it. Just choose. That's all you have to do." So like the point, like just know. Like, that's your that's the end of it. God is giving us the easiest step. You just have to move. You don't even have to worry about how you're going to move. God's going to take care of all those pieces. You just have to choose, I'm going to do what's right. And this is in, and this is in 1 Peter. He's uh, given us all that pertains to life and godliness. It says in 1 Corinthians that no, uh, no temptation taking is common demand. God will always provide a way of escape. Like, no matter what it is you struggle with, the answer is simply choose to do what's right. Now, I know that's, that's so much easier said than done. But like that just, I feel like that should take the weight off of us to not feel like we're trapped, um, to feel like there is, there's always hope. Yeah. And that it counts for something. And it does, right? Because that's the problem in the, that's the parable of the of the servants, right? God says that, that Yeshua tells that story, and it's like the one servant has the one talent, and he puts it in the ground. And why? He doesn't say because I was afraid I might lose it. If I invested it, it would come back. Because the guy, come, the master comes back. He's like, just put it in the bank. Like, the money would have not gone anywhere. At least I would have gotten the interest. And the servant's response is so telling. He says, you are someone who reaps where they do not sow. His response is basically saying, I was afraid that if I put it in, I wouldn't get anything for it. You wouldn't care. So I did nothing. You won't reward me. That's why Hebrews 11 says you must believe that God is the rewarder of those who diligently sin. Because where we get really pressed, we really give in to our sin, and we say, it doesn't matter. The worst place, like, like Chabad is so big on being like positive about yourself, and the reason for that is not because you're worthy. I mean, they actually say, I think Rabbi Nachman says, ideally, you think about yourself as being a lowly, pathetic worm all the time. But since you can't do that, we're going to go ahead and take the other extreme. Because For the reason, two minutes we're thinking good about yeah. and the reason you should think good about yourself is because the worst place you can be is despairing. The worst place you can be is, well, this is who I am. It's too late. I already did X. I might as well do Y and Z too. And that's, I think, the struggle in in humanity so much. But the thing is, we have to realize that God rewards the small things, the small steps. So you did X. God's just asking for A. Just go back to the very beginning. Just be very small and simple. 
That's all you need to start with. And it rewards that. Yes, Gregory. Just to your point about easier said than done, the thing I think that makes it easier to, to, to do is scripture, like reading scripture. Mm. Somehow, like, that is, like, the catch-all. You know, I for some reason, that's been, like, a recurring thing where I keep finding all of these passages talk about, like, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing. You know, without faith, it's impossible. Right. Like, the whole way that that really comes about is continually reading the Word. So even if, like, you're scared to do or take that first step, it's like, somehow what makes that so much more easy to do is just being first in the Word. It's And it's portions like this that demonstrate Hashem in, in such a grand way that make you think, like, wow, this little thing that I was scared to act on, like, right. that is pathetic compared right. to this the stuff that was happening here and, and it, it's such a strengthening thing to help you with that do and out of the easier said than done right absolutely and I think that, that um, one of the things that you should Fleischer mentioned in his podcast I think it was actually Rabbi Mike he was saying um, like the the hardness of the heart like you think of yourself as Pharaoh and how do you like the way you change the hardness of the heart is through prayer mm-hmm. and I think this is a cool thing is this old saying that says that like you don't pray to change God's mind you change, pray to change yours mm-hmm. and I find that to be so true um, the more that you pray for something, the more that it impacts you. I mean, I remember some struggles that I've had and whatnot, and I've asked God to take them away. But like at the same time, it was like I was praying. Like I tried to just make it like a daily prayer. I'm gonna ask God to work on this, because like that's one thing I can do, right? So I'm struggling in this area. This is what I can ask God to work on. And um, and over time, without even noticing, it changed. And it wasn't to say it went away completely, but it's like God used that. And that's the idea we're talking about. It's like, God's not, um, that's not a pat on my back to say, like, well, I, I unlocked the key, because it doesn't always work for me like that. But it's like, um, God uses those small things. There's a phrase in Judaism, and I love it, because it's actually just like something that Yeshua says. Um, it says, if you, God, God tells man, if you will have, if you will open the eye of a needle, I will drive a cart through it. God's saying, you just do something so small. Take a small step, and I will, I will change everything. And I think it's just um, it's such an encouragement to come back to that place because that's where Pharaoh is, right? Pharaoh's heart is hard, but what happens over and over and over again? Pharaoh hardens his heart. We read next week's parasha, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then at that time it feels like it's so not fair, you know? Poor Pharaoh. It's like Pharaoh had his chance. We have seven plagues before then, and every single time it says, "And Pharaoh hardened his heart." And God finally says, okay, that's what you want. Fine. Let's make this easy. Let's get this over with. And um, and I think that's, that's you know, that's, I think it's the warning to us. But it's also like, think about it. All that, Pharaoh had to just simply listen one time. Just finally go, okay, fine. Let people go. In fact, the way it starts, God's not even saying, let my people go forever. He's saying, let them go for three days in the wilderness. I mean, Pharaoh really, if you think about it from like human perspective, completely blows this whole experience. He just ruins the whole thing from a negotiating standpoint. He starts off, God's just saying, let people go for three days, almost implying they'll come back, you know. And Pharaoh says no. By the time we get to the end of it all, Pharaoh's like, just go. And here's my bracelets and gold and just get out of my country, you know. And it's like that, like... <laughs> it's, like it's like a non-artificial deal. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like... Yeah. No, he, no money, no army. <laughs> like, yeah, left with basically nothing. He's, his country's been destroyed. And it's like, you just realize, this is what sin does. And, and like, at the very beginning is a psalm, psalm of the day, where God says, open your mouth and I will fill it. But people did not desire me. So I let them follow their own heart's fantasies. So, like, God's saying, if you would just do, like, this one thing... Start, start on this path with me, then 
I'll work all this out. I'll take care of these details. And then, but instead, you know, when you resist God, you fight God, it just gets worse. Your experience gets worse, and then then you end up so far beneath where you thought you'd be. Um, and it's where Pharaoh ends up. It's really tragic. I mean, the thing is, we, we look at it here and we're celebrating. You know, God is king. And we're rejoicing over the punishment of the wicked because there is, there, is, there is a certain level of satisfaction in seeing God judge the wicked. That's good. At the same time, God doesn't rejoice. You know, in, the, in, the, in the, one of the traditions we do in Pesach that's so cool, when you take your, your finger out and drink a drip of wine for each of the plagues, it's one of the most fun things, especially for children. We're going to play with the food here. Um, you can draw little patterns on your plate. But there's a reason for the tradition. And Judaism teaches the reason why you dip your finger in your wine for each plague is you're taking out your wine, which represents joy. Because for each one, we're losing some joy. We're, we're, we're suffering with the Egyptians, even though it was necessary, even though it brought us redemption. We're not rejoicing in the punishment of the wicked. We're grieving at them and realizing it's so sad that that had to happen. And at the same time, it had happened. So, um, wow. It's only 2.15, guys. Any other, any other thoughts? I know we got all excited. I wonder if it is, if it's like, are we just being patient? Like that little thing that we do, oh, it's just so little, and it's just, and then I gotta get this other little thing. Mm. Are we gonna get to the, Right. Well, I think that's part of the challenge, right? The faith. That's where faith comes in. Um, I mean, Paul says, uh, what you see is not faith, right? So it's what you don't see. That's the faith. That's hope. And I think that's, that's our struggle. Is like, well, I'll do the small things day in, day out. I'll get up and I'll pray each morning. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say for Kahamazon or thank God for the food after I eat. I won't eat that thing that I really wanted to eat, you know, whatever it is. And it runs through the whole week. And God's rewarding every single one of those. And it's so easy sometimes to feel like, well, what is this doing? It means nothing. Um, but Moses, that's what Moses' response is, right? I mean, Moses is saying, who am I? Come on. I mean, if you think about it, like, from the end of the story, we really should be laughing. Moses is going, who am I? He's Moses. You know? Moses doesn't realize he's Moses at that point. Um, you know, it's like, and, and that's, <laughs> but that's the difference. Like, Moses starts by going to Egypt. And that's a scary thing, because he's kind of, the people don't really like him there. But he doesn't start splitting the Red Sea. He starts going to Egypt. And he goes to Egypt. He starts by asking his father-in-law if he can leave. Then he goes to Egypt. And he gets to Egypt, and he goes and tells the people. That works okay. And he goes to Pharaoh. That doesn't work so well. You know what's amazing? One of the things they says about the, in the, if I go back to chapter 6, or I think it's chapter, it's chapter 7, it says, um, or it is chapter six. Towards the end, he. Uh, this was the Aaron. Yeah, this was. Um, this was the Aaron, the Moses to whom Adonai said to control of Israel out of Egypt according to their legions. Um, and I think it's. Hang on. So where is it? He says. Verse six of chapter seven. Moses and Aaron did as Adonai commanded them. So they did. That is awesome. Yeah. Moses is at rock bottom. He's so depressed. God gives him a stern talking to. He goes okay. I'll go do it. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, that's a pretty big change. He doesn't go, okay, well, let's sleep on it. Maybe tomorrow. I got to think about it some. Or be a big glass of wine, then I'll go talk to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. um, 
Instead, it says Moses and Aaron did because I don't like commanded them. It's so matter of fact, and I think that's so great. And as you see that over and over and over again throughout the portion, the Torah, you know, and God said, people of Israel did. God said, Moses did. Moses did as the Lord commanded them. Moses said what God said, and it's like over and over again. This is why he's he's the superhero for us, because he's like his obedience is just so it's so regular. It's so almost like it's not even a big deal. It's like it happens all the time. That's why I say to say that uh, it opens with the uh, lineage, the genealogies, because they have to point out. He's a regular guy. He's a man. Right. These are both guys. Just, just men. You and I. Here's their lineage. This is the Moses and Aaron that did what God commanded. This, these are the two guys. Right. No big deal. Just be obedient. Right. Right. God uses them. Yes, sir. I think it's what we pray every morning about God's faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And I'm hearing that in this story, too. And I'm hearing it about the, the acts of Moses going to the Israelites and saying, we're getting out of it. We're getting out of Egypt. It's about the faithfulness going to Pharaoh. Hey, mm. let my people go. It's those everyday things that we spend with other people and speaking that life into them too. Mm -hmm. And how maybe you don't get that instantaneous blessing that you really wish that God would just pour out on you. But on the other side of that, I'm a life that has been changed because of other people mm -hmm. speaking that blessing into me. Mm -hmm. And all those years it took before Adam and I came and met me and said, hey, remember what all these people's been saying? Mm. I'm that guy. Mm. Follow me. Mm. Come out. Mm -hmm. my, it goes back my, to your story yeah. about the little kid. You know, right. it's, it's ingrained in us. And, you know, sometimes it just takes a while to click. You yeah. know? And I, I mean, part of the portion that stood out to me is just the people, the e Egyptians that feared God, they had that little piece. Right. Like, you know what? I'm going to go inside. And then <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, I can imagine them sitting out there looking out the window. Oh, goodness, I'm so glad I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Look, I mean, like, cows are falling over. Yeah. Like, He's out there, you know. But it's just that little bit of faith that they had. It wasn't even really faith. It was fear. It was fear in right. what could happen that forced them to to act, to be obedient, and say, I'm, you know what, I'm going to, and sometimes we get that way, you know, it's just that little feeling that we have, you know, God speaking to us, Holy Spirit saying, you know, hey, you probably shouldn't go there, or you shouldn't be in this situation, or whatever, and we listen, and then, you know, we're so glad we didn't go there, because bad things happened, or whatever, right. you know, and so, to me, it just, it just struck out to me that, even though, like I said, they didn't even know who this was, but, I mean, hello, all the plagues before. <laughs> They're like, you know, you might be keeping an eye on this one, you know, that kind of thing. But I just thought that was just amazing that they're a little bit, and God honored that. Right, he you did. Know, just that little bit of fear. God was like, you know what, we're going to protect him. They got out. Right. Fine. That's all he's asking for. Yeah, I kind of wonder about, like, you were the intellectuals of the day. Were they like, oh, that thing, that frog thing, it was this other the other thing. And then people would back off like one step forward and the frogs are back. Yeah, you know that the, the Nile turning to blood is a clear sign of climate change. And, yeah. you know. and then there's all these all this other stuff. Pseudo Egyptian science. Right. Yeah. Going on and people saying the news, you know, mm. that type of thing. Yeah, I, I, and then yeah. you, and then you 
choosing. Well, if anything, I think there's a there's a tradition about that. It says that like so um, with the magicians doing the, the magic of their own, the tradition that says that um, Pharaoh's response to this is like, you guys, you it's like would someone bring beans to Bean Town? Like you brought magic to Egypt, please. <laughs> we do magic all the time. So up until the lice, there's this idea that like. The sages comment that the lice is a change turning point for the the, the uh, magicians. Up until then, they could kind of like you know talk it away. Yeah, so Moses' miracles are like bigger, but he just has better spells than we do. You know, whatever. Not that there's actually a god behind it. He just he's he's got special power. But the lice, they say, is the finger of God because yeah. they realize there's something else there. But you'd think that they would have got it when the snake ate all theirs, you know? Mm. And like, hmm, what's this about? You know? Right, but see, I think it's so true, though, like the, the lack of humility of people, our own struggle, right? We, we see God do miracles all the time. I mean, we, we sometimes, like, are incredulous that the people of Israel come out of the Red Sea and splitting the Red Sea, and then, like, days later, they're complaining because God isn't giving them water. And But, but that's human. Like, we see huge yeah. miracles all the time, and then we just kind of choose to ignore them when our circumstances change. I mean, it's like in, in sports, you know, the coach wins, coach of the year, they win the championship, everything's great. Two years later, the team's not so good. Fire him! Start over! You know, that's human. Alex. You know, there's another lesson that I got from this, um, and I always do when I come in reading this. Um, and it goes along the line of basically free will, autonomy, and salvation. And what I'm getting at is, you know, we say Pharaoh could have done this and done that, and it would have all been well with him and... Um, Mitzrayim, it, um, Egypt. But the fact is, Pharaoh had been measured, he had been weighed, and he had been found lacking. When he, when God had drawn that line in the sand, put Pharaoh on the other side, Pharaoh had no more autonomy. He had a free will, but he had no more autonomy yeah. of his salvation. He was doomed from the very beginning. And we see this concept throughout Torah and scriptures. In many nations, Canaan, for example, and we see this even in the New Testament. There's one, only one sin unto death, and that is blasphemy the, um, the Holy Spirit. The fact is, even though we like to consider that we have our own free will, we can get to a state of reprobate um, mind deprivation to the point where we completely lose our autonomy. Right. And we have been now, we've doomed our own selves to eternity of separation from God. I think this is a big story that often challenges people who think, oh, I've always got a chance to repent, mm. and I can continue going on this path, right. and God will always love me. He was always forgiving me because He's a benevolent Father sitting up there with a big smile on His face, saying, "A big know, white beard." Yeah, and, no, yeah, and yeah. just but that is not the concept that you get here. No, and the concept here is, yeah, Pharaoh had his own say, so he could say whatever. But and the fact is, it wasn't going to happen because God had already said it would not happen from the very beginning. Before Moshe even got into Egypt, He said, "Well, harden his heart. Right. I will do that to him, so that way." He does the opposite of what I want him to do it's, in order to show myself right. to do that. Right. It's almost like you have to like get it from both sides. It's like when you are in a place where you realize your sin and there's like you have to it's almost like you have to grab onto that that from our perspective there's always hope for repentance. Mm -hmm. But then if you are sinning, then you almost have to take like what you're talking about and almost be like, but I could cross a line and there may not be a way back. Like, and I guess, because that's part of what, I mean, the, the scriptures do talk about that idea. That's Romans 1. Like, there's a place where God goes, that's why I said, quote from the Psalms earlier, where God, you know, paraphrasing, effectively says, okay, fine. 
You want to be that way? What you want? What you want? Okay. And I and I think that's it's a very scary place to even think about going. I think that's the and so like to your point, like it's like this weird, you know, kind of depends on which side of the coin you're on. If you're feeling repentant, there's always hope. If you're not feeling repentant, you may not always have an opportunity. All right, I got Greg in the night. Well, I can go do something quick. So I'm just having a different point. Okay, come back here. Well, I mean, it's just part of part of the problem is we we think in terms of linear and art right. and our cause and effect is always linear and when we we begin to contemplate because we can never completely understand when we begin to contemplate that god's um god's operating and it's found actually in chapter six in the very beginning of our portion where he says i i am i was i am and i will be and that the whole notion of 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 linear time is is something that he created not he is not subject or limited to his when we when we become mm. impatient because we ask God for something and we wonder if we're just adding adding you know drops to fill up a cup you know one at a time we need to understand that it's the cups already full and and right. and he's not waiting for us to come along it's already been done and having that notion because we can't understand it but having the notion that God is operating at a, at a completely different level with regard to, to time, outside of time, it, to me is almost incomprehensible. So I, the faith is to say, but I know that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And I know that he punishes the wicked. And we know in the end, this is what we will see. But we also need to keep remembering that the end isn't really in the future. It's already occurred. God has already completely and absolutely judged the wicked. He has completely and absolutely already rewarded the righteous. Completely. So it's only our experience that is lacking. You use the term time, and time is a measure of decay. That's right. And decay did not occur until the fall. That's exactly right. God is outside decay because he is perfect. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we have linearity is due to um, being able to measure that decay. That's right. So when you have the atomic hmm. clock, which is what the actual concept of time is measured off of, it's measuring off of the atomic decay of protons, electrons, and a sort. And that is exactly what, why we see things in a linear fashion. is because we see things that's already passed, things that are in the present that are being passed, and things that are already developed that will soon pass. And it's all because of decay, all because of time. That's right. Yeah. We are trapped in that incomplete state. That's what I was talking about earlier. That's what, that's what this world is. This world is incomplete. This world is... Um, God is hidden and when we see God for who he really is then you're right that all that stuff starts to make sense it starts to kind of click you can re realize it but to your point earlier Alex for a whole lot of people it's going to be way too late I mean that's what we're reading in Revelation right these people aren't like I said earlier they're not they're not going oh now I get it it's too late instead they're 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 shaking their fist at God um, and I think that that's that's the scary place. At the same time, for us, the encouragement should be that we have, um, we have this promise, we have this opportunity that's coming, um, and it's that patience to realize, like my dad's saying, it's already happened, and I don't have to feel like it's not going to happen. God's not keeping His word because He already did. I mean, think about it. It's like you read if you read the portion today, and read the the story, the narrative as as a as a chronological narrative. It's like when God promises the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not going. I wonder if He's going to give it to them. Because you already know how a story ends. Well, God's in the same boat. He's not going, this is my plan. Hopefully it works out. You know, 
fingers crossed, God's already done it. And, you know, Abraham didn't experience it at the time, but um, he did eventually. Oh. I got a limerick. I just <laughs> thought of it. made me think of it. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoils his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I agree. Well, so this is just a kind of a different thing that I've never seen before. We were listening on the way over here to Versus Designs with the Torah Kids thing, and the thing that they were pointing out was really cool. It was the same thing that you actually asked Zoe about. It was about the staff. And so, Daniel uh, Lancaster starts out talking about the staff and this whole idea that the staff is a representation of a shepherd, because the shepherd is the staff, but it's also something sort of like a scepter for, for a king, right. and how the, the representation of both the kingship and being shepherd is king the son. Uh, that was all cool, and then it talked about, and you know, it told the story of why the, why the magicians needed to buy new staffs, basically. <laughs> and so it was cute and everything, but then I started thinking, like, so, you know, Mr. Upham has that whole thing about the well. I started, like, looking up that, the word for staff, mate, and it's really interesting how if you think about the staff itself being a, a representation of Messiah somehow, like how prevalent it is throughout Scripture in a lot of cases, there's almost, almost all of the plagues start with saying, and Moshe stretched out his staff, you know, and like you think about how the rock that followed them in the wilderness, well, there is also a representation of Messiah throughout the beginning part of the redemption, not just after the Red Sea, hmm. but it was also with the staff, it's the staff that all some at least the first couple plates start with. It's the staff that stretches out over the Red Sea, you know. And and it's interesting because the very first usage of the word goes back to Judah and Tamar, who is you know in the line of Messiah, which is also kind of interesting. But anyway, it, it made me start looking for it throughout this portion and how often it shows up throughout the the plagues and and throughout the whole story. And um, and because I always love. Paul sort of drops about the rock and mm-hmm. makes you think about Messiah following them through the wilderness or them following Messiah through the wilderness. Um, and, but then this is just an, an extra one, I think, that we can see like, oh, wow, yeah, he was there all along with his people. You know, the, there was a Moshe being a representative of that as well, but, but then also the staff. That's very good. And we get the kind of the um, staff that buds, Aaron's staff. Um, so it's sort of like it's both a method of redemption, but it's also a... Um, declarative of the priesthood. Um, and you so have that Greg will be a well guy, and one Greg will be a staff. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay. We can look forward to all of those in the future. I like it. Any final comments? Anything else? Um, just off, going off of that, um, that one parsha, it actually, God says, now take this staff after you've showed him the three signs. He said, now take this staff in your hand because you need it to perform the signs. Yeah, it's interesting how God, like, again, it's small steps, you know. I think that's, that's, that's God's grace, I think, to give us um, commandments that we can do, that we can see, that we can touch. Because, um, like, there's a lot of commentary about, like, well, what's the purpose of eating kosher? And what's the reason for Shabbat? And, you know, like, trying to understand, like, the, what's the ultimate goal of this mitzvah? Um, and I think that a lot of those are, are true, you know, this sanctification and transformation inside all that stuff but it's like but god is so good to say he doesn't say 
Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't just say, I want you to be sanctified on the inside. Go figure that one out. He says, don't eat pork. That's how we're going to start. And it's like, that's a, that I can do. You know, I think it's so, it's so funny how um, Christians sometimes think that, you know, the commandments of Messiah are so much easier. Aren't you glad we don't have to do the Torah anymore? And it's like, things that Messiah talks about are hard. He's talking about things like forgiving your neighbor, loving your neighbor, forgiving your enemy, loving your enemy. You know, he's talking about, like, being careful about what you think about. Like, those are the really hard mitzvot. Those are like the advanced classes, you know, <laughs> keeping Shabbat and, not, and eating kosher. That's the easy stuff. That's the place to start. You know, once you kind of got that down, then you can start working a little more diligently on those thought pattern changes. But, uh, but you're right. It's like pick up the staff, you know, it's like, let's start there. He has given us everything that pertains to life. Right? Amen. Isn't there a scripture that says that the good Lord's eyes are looking to and fro proclaim just on the roof where people are yeah. So, you know, what is he looking for, maybe? What does he see? He stops and, oh, look at this great view. Oh, it's Shabbat. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I just have a one, it's more of a question with regards to, you know, we danced around it. We never addressed it. What was it about the lies that revealed the finger of God? Why is that the anomaly, the outlier in the whole situation? Do you have a... So Rashi says that, I think it's Rashi. It's in the Rashi commentary. It says that there's an understanding in magic that demonic forces only can wield power over things that are a certain size. That once it gets too small, below I think a, I think it's a kernel of corn. Once it gets too small, then the the dark side of the spiritual forces can no longer influence it. So when Moses brings about the lice. The magicians say, well, we can't, we cannot do that. Like, it's actually outside rules. And so, therefore, this must be God. Um, there's no other explanation. Um, and, and, but, it, but to Marianne's point, I think it's so important to think about, like, today, all these people talking about, and I'm, I'm not saying that, like, we shouldn't um, uh, not try to find ways to make our planet better. Maybe we find ways to make our planet worse and just have fun. But the point is that um, I'm not saying that like you just throw it all out. But the but the idea it's, it's so sad to me that people would look at things and and blame it all on nature, blame it all on well there's a big giant hurricane and that's climate change and there's earthquakes and that's you know because we done drilling too much or whatever. I mean and it's like instead of seeing it and going this is God trying to get our attention. Yeah. Like this was really bad that happened and maybe God's trying to say hello I'm still here. I was I was thinking of you know we were we're watching this TV show, not important, but in it it's a it's a political TV show and um, in it there's a natural disaster I think it's the fires in California, and um, for some reason I think this is so silly but it is true in our in what happens in our culture today the government is getting blamed for that I don't understand that it's not their fault they're fighting it of course the the firefighters are out there people are dying. But it's like the government has all this pressure to get this fire out because, like, you know, the polls are dropping and America's mad. And it's like, yes, how, is this, how is this the government's fault? <laughs> and it's because, you know, uh, as, as America, we rely too much on the government for everything. But I was thinking about the fact that in abortion, it actually is the government's fault. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, they just, it, I wonder how much the people knew, the, the people in Egypt knew about what was going on with Moses and Aaron and mm -hmm. the plagues and everything, or if they, you know, things were just happening. But it's like, 
but but he was practical. <laughs> he just did something else, then something different would happen. Unlike America. Right. The fact that he didn't care. He didn't, like, care. He didn't care. Who what about all these people? Yeah. yeah. There should have been an uproar. There should have been. America. <laughs> But that seems to be what actually happens, right? The people eventually pull him aside. And they're like, have you seen, have you, have you gone outside today? Did you know that he's been, like, destroyed? Yeah, oh, like, you should go ahead and let them go. Um, those same people come back, you know, after everyone leaves and goes, so, I, they all left. I, I don't think they're coming back. I think we should go after them. It's like, <laughs> yeah, fickle, a fickleness of man. The finger of God, Yeshua uses it as a basis for his ministry. So, so it actually is setting a pattern. Magicians can't do it. This is proof that God's involved, right? And they say this is the finger of God. It's that, it's that, um, and as Rashi says, size. But where Yeshua says, it's in the casting out of demons. So if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then then you can know. So it's that same, it's, it's the thing that human beings are completely incapable of replicating. And most people would agree. Yep, that couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because in that one, it's like actually the wasn't special effects. Right. Do green screen and all that kind of stuff. That's right. right. That's what. That's what they, um, the the the, the, the rabbis at the time had a exorcism. They had the ability to cast out demons, but there were certain methods that they had to use to get dark. And Yeshua does it differently. In fact, he's able to cast out. One of the things you're supposed to do is to get the person to tell you the name of the demon so that you can cast it out by name traditionally. And Yeshua is able to cast out demons of people who can't talk. Well, that's inherently impossible. So the so some of the opponents of his, not all the Pharisees were, but the ones who were. That's actually the one where he says the, the finger of God because it's the it, because it's the man dumb. He's, yeah, he's mute. And they and they actually say, well, it must be the king of the demons. Like he has demonic power. There's no because we can't do that because we're righteous, you know. And and Yeshua's response is. If I can count out by the yeah, house by itself cannot stand. If I by the fear of God, and he's playing off of this portion because the magicians in their own power weren't able to achieve that, and it was proof that it was God working through Moses, and proof that what he had to say was coming from God too. And that's what Yeshua is basically trying to get at. He's trying to say, but it comes from God. It's not from me. Well, if the miracles are coming from God, what does that say about the rest of the ministry? Very good, like that. All right, well, well done, everybody. We made it to 243. Now I'm so impressed. Um, I got a lot of great comments today. Um, if I could get, um, I think that's my son. That's perfect timing. If I could get my father on the back to close us out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've granted us today. Uh, the privilege to be obedient to you and set this day aside from the other days of labor. We pray that you'll bless us, Father. You'll give us the strength to praise you, to be obedient to you, as we look forward to the uh, holidays coming uh, that you have ordained and commanded us to keep. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for one another, and pray that you would remind us to pray for each other each day until we meet again. We pray these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, and all God's people sit. Wrong thing.